0: Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is found in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, and can be found on page 984 in your Black Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. And whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged.
1: Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad, I'm really glad that you're here. The first thing I wanna talk about real quickly is, I, I come up every single Sunday, I come up every Sunday and I open my Bible to the text that we have and I set it right here on the corner of the pulpit And then later throughout my sermon, I'll reference different places in the scriptures and I'll jump around at different times to different cross references or parallel verses. And I almost never pick this up and flip through it. I put all those in my notes. I put all those texts in my notes itself, but I don't move the Bible ever pretty much. And the reason that I do that with the Bible up here open during the whole sermon is because God's Word is the only thing worth listening to on a Sunday morning, not anything I have to say. So this is a liturgical practice for me to demonstrate that that's what we're here for. And that's that's why we're humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves even to the Word of God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And you all don't know that, so I figured I would tell you. Let's pray before we get into this. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you talk to us. You talk to us. You speak. You are not silent, you are not far away, you're near. Spirit of the living God, would you take this word and penetrate our hearts with it? Would you capture us with your beauty? Arrest us with your power and truth and goodness this morning. Strengthen, intensify our faith, fill us with hope, Increase our love and affection, both for you and your word and for one another as a church family. And would you do that this morning, Spirit of God? Would you move? Would you move? We offer our lives, our hearts, our minds, everything we have to you. We acknowledge your power and lordship in every single nook and cranny of our lives so would you do work this morning i pray in the name of jesus amen in my in my short time in my short time in pastoral ministry this spring will mark my 6th year even in that short time if you were to ask me how to get into hot water with people in the church if you ask me how to get strained or anxious conversations and discussions with people, I could tell you, step one: talk about husbands and wives. <laughs> talk about what the Bible means when it talks about submission. Talk about what the Bible means when it talks about headship. Talk about what the Bible means when it talks about our kids. And then step two would be to talk about people's parenting. Especially how families in the church parent and and discipline their own children. If you ask me how to ruffle feathers and how to put everybody on edge or uncomfortable, that recipe is fairly easy for me to put together. Talk about headship, talk about submission, talk about parenting. And you got it because it's my observation that these topics are not often broached in the church, sadly even amongst friends, even our closest friends. And when they are, we tend to have our position firmly fortified and entrenched. What do I mean by that? I mean that we get revved up and we tend to get offended when people offer us parenting advice or discipline advice, or advice on how husbands should lead their wives, or advice on how wives should submit to their own husbands. Those subjects tend to be off limits even in the church. They tend to be emotionally charged and they tend to even, they tend to even fracture close friendships like few things do in our age. So leading up to this time, knowing that I was going to give whole sermons dedicated to each of these subjects, I spent a lot of time praying, praying for you, praying for our church, praying that God would help us see God's loving care for us in his instructions in the Bible and help us to not only believe what he says, but to love it, to love it. The word of God cuts against the grain of our flesh. Every time. The Word of God cuts against the grain of our flesh. The Word of God insults and injures our flesh. That's what it is supposed to do. And being a Christian means that you understand that and you believe God when He says that that is good for you. I want us to encounter God's Word on both of these subjects and let it cut like a surgeon's scalpel. In the weeks leading up to today, to today I prayerfully decided that I wasn't gonna try and thread some imaginary needle so that I could nail these topics perfectly and keep everybody happy and comfortable. The truth is, I don't believe that there is a needle to thread at all. There's only the truth to be heard and truth to be loved. So I'm not going to arrange my sermon on these topics around any of our modern sensibilities, me included. I'm going to attempt as best I can to let the word of God speak for itself on these subjects. We live in a time when hard words are carefully avoided, are carefully avoided, and their absence is even fervently demanded. But I am a man who still agrees with the Puritans that hard words make soft hearts. I've seen some hard hearts in my day, and feathery words don't break anything. And preaching always works. What do I mean by that? I mean it always does what it's supposed to do. It always hardens the hard-hearted worse, and it softens the humble and the repentant. It always works. And I'm burdened, as we're moving to the last couple of chapters of this book, that we would understand that reality. Because Jesus Christ isn't interested in, And being a part of our program to promote our own popularity. He isn't an accoutrement. Jesus is not an accessory to your life. He isn't an Instagram gloss to boost your followers. He's Lord. He's Lord. And if you find yourself pursuing sin this morning or if you find yourself just shopping at this church for the right kind of church that checks all the boxes, you should know that here at this church, we're zealous about dying. Dying to our sin, dying to habits of our ego, dying to our flesh, dying to habits of self-promotion, dying to habits of manipulation or habitual patterns of thinking that our lives belong to us. We're zealous about dying. I told Andrew the other week that, Pastor Andrew the other week, that if the, gospel, if the gospel wasn't true, I'd never get on a stage in my life ever again where I'd have no reason to get up here in the first place. I have no reason to speak into a microphone except for Jesus Christ. I have some sins and struggles in my life of being the center of attention isn't, isn't one of them. And that's the only reason I have to be up here. God has given us his word, His word. And it gives us instructions, and those instructions are always like medicine for us. They are always healing to our hearts. But many times the recovery hurts so much more than the surgery does. So I'm up here today for one single reason Jesus is Lord, He's Lord. That phrase, the Lord, is repeated in different ways seven times in eight verses, both in our text and surrounding our text today. That's the hermeneutical key to this instruction. And if you don't know what the word hermeneutics means, it's just a fancy word for biblical interpretation. OK, hermeneutics is just a fancy word for interpreting the Bible. And we use hermeneutical principles as, we've, as we read and understand what the text is saying. And in our understanding of Colossians 3.18, the lens or framework that we need to understand is shaped primarily by the lordship of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I've arranged my main points today around two observations and one assertion. So, number one, this text is about taking off the old man and putting on the new man. Number two, this text is about the lordship of Jesus. And number three, nothing in the Bible is true without also being good and also being beautiful for us. This text is still an application. Number one, this text is is about taking off the old man and putting on the new man. This text is still an application of what we've read in the last two weeks. In Colossians chapter three, verses nine and 10, Paul says to us that we have taken off an old self and put on a new self. And the apostles referencing the beginning of creation. Other translations say it this way, and it makes it more obvious. It says, put off the old man and put on the new man. And that captures what it's getting at a little more clearly, because husbands and wives, fathers and children, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a new person. The old man is Adam, and he's gone. And the new man is Christ Jesus and he is who you are in now. And you were raised new with him in his resurrection. The transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a transformation that makes your worldview out there, how you see the world change, and it also changes inside the landscape of your heart and your inner world completely change to be totally Christocentric, centered on Christ. This is the message of Colossians, Christ over all. And you won't be able to live like Colossians 3 and 4 tell us to live unless you're shedding more of your Adam skin, so to speak, and putting on more of the new man, the Christ clothing. Genesis 3 provides the backdrop for Colossians chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 verses 6 through 8 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was right there. And then he ate it. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound and they heard the sound of the Lord God in the midst of the garden and they went the opposite direction they hid They hid They heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden Adam and Eve sinned in this moment their eyes were opened in a way that they weren't before and they were ashamed. They knew that they were naked in a different way. They looked down and understood that they were naked and they knew things were different now. They knew things were broken now. Their relationship with God was broken and they tried to cover themselves with leaves and they hid behind a tree. Point of levity, it kind of reminds me of my kids trying to like hide behind a pencil or something, right? This is the living God and they're hiding amongst the trees. The point I'm making is that their fig leaves are not enough to cover their shame. And they aren't enough to cover your shame, no matter what they are. And I know that we use things like success and we use our gifts, we use our accomplishments, we use our money and our stuff to try to cover our shame, and it isn't enough. Their fig leaves are insufficient, and God knows that, so He makes them clothes out of a sacrifice, the skins of an animal. And those skins aren't enough either, but at this point in the story, God's making a promise. God's foreshadowing what Christ is going to be for the new creations, you and me, if you're in Christ, completely covered, completely protected, brand new. If you're in Christ, you are that new creation clothed with Christ. The text today about submission Wives submitting to their own husbands is a text about putting on Christ's clothes instead of keeping your Adam clothes on, the ones that can't even do for you what you long for them to do for you. Just like God killed an animal in the garden to clothe and cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve, in the cross of Jesus Christ, your sin, your rebellion, your shame, your guilt is fully dealt with. And now you're clothed in Christ. He bore your shame. He paid the cost of your rebellion. This isn't my introduction to this verse on submission. This is Paul's preparation for verses 12 through 25. He's already set the stage. And now he said, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we could read this text today that we have like this. So in the name of the Lord Jesus, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus, husbands, Love your wives and don't be harsh with them. In the name of the Lord Jesus, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus, fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. As we tackle the elephant in the room of our modern culture, even just mentioning verse 18 today, I want to approach it from this perspective We're a church that doesn't hide from hard texts. We're a church that stands both on top of the sturdy word of God and at the same time underneath the authority of the word of God. We're a church that believes what the Bible says is not only true and completely objective and perfect, but it's also good for us and it's also beautiful for us. Human beings are designed by God to flourish through his order of creation and his instructions to us. So whatever the Bible is offering us today, by way of instruction, we want to take it. We want to eat it and we want to taste it as delicious to us. We don't read the Bible to find out if it feels true. We read the Bible to understand what truth even is at all. We don't read the Bible to find out if it feels true. Good or if it feels beautiful, we read so that our minds can be renewed to understand and appreciate and apprehend goodness or beauty at all. My first point is that the submission of wives to husbands is an act of obedience to God to put on the new man and shed the old man. So before I spend the next three weeks especially speaking about these different relationships of families inside the church, I want to put something on myself. I find myself personally burdened to put on what was referenced earlier in Colossians, and I want to put on a compassionate heart. I want to put on kindness. I want to be clothed in humility, in meekness, in patience. I want to bear with you, and and I need you to bear with me. And I need us to forgive one another like we've been forgiven. And above all, I want to put on love, which binds us and binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's my burden for the color or the texture or the aroma of the next three weeks, that I would put on those things now, as we think about this verse, Colossians 3:18, in particular, wives submit to your husbands. We also want to mention some parallel passages from God's word. So, listen to Ephesians 5:22 through 24, which says, "Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior." Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Titus 2, 3-5 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what's good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. First Peter 3, 1 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won with a wor- without a word by the conduct of their wives. And now before I move, before I move any further, I'm going to offer two different definitions of submission before I continue. Uh, One from Pastor John Piper and then one from author Abigail Dodds. Pastor John Piper offers a helpful definition of submission. I'll I'll say it can't be perfect because it isn't the Holy Spirit, but I find it helpful. He defines submission as the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership And so help to carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Her absolute authority is Christ, not her husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ. Close quote. And in Abigail Dodd's book, A Typical Woman, she says this about submission. Quote, what is submission? What does it even mean? Is it simply obedience? Well, I think there is some similarity, but I think a better way to describe it is to say that submission is willingly placing yourself under the authority of another. Christ willingly placed himself under his father's authority when he said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39, likewise, every Christian is willingly under authority, both God's authority and other Christians' authority, close quote. We live in an age of autonomy-obsessed, radical individualism. The culture around us would read these verses and they would scoff, but they would scoff because they would read the plain meaning and then reject what it says, our temptation is to read the plain meaning and change what it says because we scoff in our hearts at what it says. This is one of those cases where the culture around us might even read these verses with a truer interpretation than we do or that the modern church does. They scoff because they understand what it says and they hate what it says. But because we can't hate it because we're Christians. We're tempted to just change what it says, or ignore what it says, or reinterpret what it says. It is Christians who get embarrassed and offended by texts like these. And so we try to make them palatable, both to the world and to our own sensibilities. But the truth isn't palatable to the world, and it isn't palatable to our own flesh. We read them out loud, and our faces turn red And so we mold them or we reshape the verses about submission into something that they aren't so that we can plug our noses and choke them down. And one way that we do this is with different equality texts in the scriptures, just like the ones in Colossians 3.11, which say, here there's neither Greek nor Jew, neither circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And if you look in Ephesians, a similar parallel passage, it says neither male nor female. And many interpreters today read that and inject our own modern take on liberation and say that this means that this command to submit to husbands is flattened and interchangeable and merely about pure Christian mutuality. That the husband-wife dynamic is more like two teammates on a basketball team than a marriage. Now, while it is true that there is much cooperation required and much mutual sacrifice required necessary in a healthy marriage, a healthy Christian marriage, the dynamic between wives and husbands is not explained as two teammates in the scriptures. Husband and wife are one flesh with one head. And they operate in a healthy and mutually sacrificial dynamic of headship and submission. Now, let me also say, before moving forward, that sinful humans do sinful things with the Bible. One way that sinful people twist the scriptures is when a man would use this text in a domineering way or a forceful way to get his wife to sin or to unwillingly coerce her to serve his every whim. Submission in the word of God is a good thing, and it's true that good things get used in bad ways, but that doesn't mean that we throw away the good thing altogether. You can use a hammer to hurt somebody, or you can use a hammer to build a house for somebody. But just because some fools, and make no mistake, they are fools, use hammers to hurt people doesn't mean hammers are bad. And men have used passages like these and have abused them in order to inflict harm onto women. And that's wicked and God hates it and God will judge those men for that behavior. The living God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows and those men will reap a whirlwind. They won't get away with a single harsh word, much less a harsh anything else. But that's not the only error that we can make in this moment. There's also a reactive error as well. There's another abuse of the scripture, and that is to dilute it of its intended meaning. Instead of this text meaning what it says, we can dilute it into merely mutual Christian preference for one another. In this case, husbands and wives. But this isn't true in our text today or other texts in the Bible. And that can be seen because none of the other parallel texts talk about this kind of generic mutuality or generic mutual Christian submission to one another, which would have been easy for Paul to do in any of those other places in the scriptures. No, this is a specific marital dynamic that is required of of the wife, much like next week's requirement is pointed at the husbands and fathers. The Bible sees no contradiction. The Bible sees zero contradiction in laying out these equality texts right next to specific injunctions for both men and women. Douglas Moo puts it this way when he says, she must submit not because it was necessary for the order of society as the secular household codes usually emphasized or only because it was appropriate to that time or place, but because it is the kind of behavior that is fitting To those who live in the sphere of the Lord in Christ. And Abigail Dodds expounds on this reality when she says, quote, in the letter to the Colossians, Paul reminds wives to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, you are in the Lord. Submission is fitting for you. Why is submission fitting in the Lord? Because in the Lord, submission to our our husband is done by faith. Done by faith in Christ and is therefore holy. It's a beautiful picture of how the church responds to the good authority of Christ. When I submit to my husband, I am not declaring him to be perfectly deserving of it or a perfect leader. I'm declaring Jesus to be perfectly deserving of it and Jesus to be a perfect leader. That's what it means to submit in the Lord. But when we are not in the Lord and acting by faith, Submission may quickly be distorted into a thousand perverse evils. And this turns me to my second main observation or point. This is a section that's all about the Lordship of Christ and how the Lordship of Christ operates and orients all relationships in our lives and especially household relationships the thrust of this verse for us must be to understand how Paul's saying it. These instructions are about the lordship of Christ, these verses are about submission for all of us to Jesus. That's what they're about. If you try to shrink them or if you try to reduce them to merely, merely horizontal relationships instead of our primary relationship to Christ, and they get distorted and gnarled and twisted and deformed. And that's why we bristle at them. We've seen so many poor examples. These verses are about a vertical authority of Christ in our lives operating first and foremost in every single horizontal relationship that we have. It's only when we chop off or disconnect the concept of our submission vertically first to Christ that we become agitated with these commands. Christ is Lord. That phrase, the Lord, is said seven times in eight verses. It's used to couch all of these commands related to these relationships. So that means the diamonds of these different instructions because every instruction from the word of God is a precious jewel. The diamonds of these instructions, the commands here in this verse, are placed in a setting of the lordship of the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's Lord. He's Lord over me and he's Lord over you. And Lord over your wallet, He's Lord over your internet browser history. He's Lord over your marriage dynamics. He's Lord over the attitudes that you choose to have. He's Lord over way more than we give him conscious juris- jurisdiction over. He's Lord over way more than we give him conscious juris- jurisdiction over. Way more. And I don't get to decide what loving my wife looks like. Jesus tells me what it looks like. I don't get to decide what it looks like to submit to Jesus. He decides what it looks like. He's Lord over my bristling and my kicking against the goads. Husbands submit to the Lordship of Christ by loving their wives like Christ loves the church. Wives submit to the Lordship of Christ by submitting to their husbands as they submit to Christ. Children submit to the Lordship of Christ by obeying their parents. And masters and slaves, we'll see later, submit to the Lordship of Christ in how they treat one another. Two hermeneutical lenses, interpretive lenses that we need to put on if we're going to receive this text correctly is that all human submission instructed in the Bible is submission to the Lordship of Christ. Christians are instructed to submit to the governing authorities, and they're commanded to submit one to another under the lordship of Christ. That's one interpretive lens, and it's crucial. And there's another. We should also read texts about submission through the lens that even Christ acts in submission when he submits his will to the will of his own father. We all submit in some way that is ultimately ultimately directed as submission to Christ. And yet, even Christ himself took on a posture of submission. This is why you can look to Jesus both as an example, as one who embraced the beauty and the call and the glory of submission, and as one who's worthy to submit to in everything, instead of reading these texts, trying to grasp them and get our minds around them by thinking in purely humanistic horizontal terms. Now, this brings up another thing that I need to say in this text because the text makes it clear. It makes it really clear. It's precisely because, it's precisely in light of the fact that submission of wives to husbands is fundamentally grounded in the lordship of Christ that that means something really plain, really plain, it means that any kind of sin must be rejected, or any, or any coercion to sin by any husband must not be tolerated by any wife. Let me say it as clearly as, I, as clearly as I can. Wives, wives, your husband may never ask you to sin. Ever. Your husband may not ask you to sin. And if they do, you're acquired by your, required by your Lordship to Christ to refuse them. You should not lie for your husband or sin in any way, even if your husband is asking you to. Your submission to Jesus always trumps your submission to your husband. If you don't have a clear conscience about something or if your husband is asking you to do something that you don't have a clear conscience about or if he's asking you to sin and he's not responding to you the way that the Bible requires him to, how he should, the elders of this church want to go on record as saying we would humbly be eager to serve you and help you in any way that we can. That's part of what it means to be an elder, to protect the sheep in just these kinds of circumstances. Our text exhorts wives to submit to their husbands because this is what it looks like to put off the old self and put on your new self. Submit to your husband because it's one aspect of how you submit to Christ's lordship in your life. And wives submit to your own husbands because God's word to us is the truth. And that necessarily means it's also beautiful and it's also good for us. This brings me to my final point, but before I get there, I want to say that preparing for this text was was weighty and sobering. It really matters to me. And for husbands in in this room, this text should be weighty and sobering. If your wife listens to this text, she's saying, yes, I'll follow Christ as I follow you, as you follow Christ. That's a mantle of leadership and sacrifice and a weight that none of us should take lightly because God doesn't take it lightly. So going into my third point, nothing in the Bible is true without also being good and beautiful. My plan, my plan over the next three weeks is to talk about what Paul means and why these things are beautiful why he has a positive vision for husbands and wives and how families relate to each other. I want to paint a positive vision for things like headship and submission. So this is going to be kind of forward facing and mainly proactive for us. I want us to cultivate a positive vision of what the Bible values and teaches about men and women and about husbands and wives. I want us to cultivate a positive vision of what the Bible values and teaches about headship and submission in the home and in the church. And earlier I quoted from 1 Peter 3, 1, but but Peter goes on and he says more. And this exhortation that I want to finish on is is from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, which says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be on the outside. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart isn't like some abstract beauty. Biblical submission is concrete, internal adornment. Adornment. This isn't foggy or fuzzy or muddled. This is pure and respectful conduct that ornaments beautification on the inside. And this beauty isn't perishable beauty. It doesn't Diminish with age. It only grows more radiant over time. According to the Word of God, this disposition of your heart is imperishable beauty. Imperishable beauty. I'm reminded of Proverbs, which says, Beauty is fleeting. This kind of beauty isn't fleeting. This kind of beauty isn't fleeting. And I know that many women in general struggle with feeling beautiful or with comparing themselves to other women or comparing themselves with Instagram moms or just comparing themselves on any number of things with other women. But the word of God teaches here that there's a disposition, a pure and respectful posture, a heart posture that adorns a woman like holy women in the Bible used to adorn themselves. So I, so I I do appeal to the women in our church As as a husband myself, and in all humility, a husband who has failed my own wife a million times today, I appeal to my spiritual sisters and spiritual moms in the room right now to adorn yourself with imperishable beauty. Adorn yourselves with beauty that is deep and full of faith in God Beauty that is powerful and weighty and substantive and God-glorifying and a beauty that truly lasts. Don't be duped into looking for or fighting for or listening to what the culture around you tells you that you need in order to be beautiful. It's wrong. It is wrong. Don't be tricked into being afraid of what the culture tells you to be afraid of. They are wrong. In this text, we see not being afraid as a part of what adornment on the inside looks like. So adorn your beauty by strengthening your faith. Decorate your beauty by deepening and increasing your confidence in Christ, your true Lord, not by what the world or our culture, and especially not even by what that little screen in your pocket tells you you need to do. Like every text, like every text we read in in the next two weeks, in the next six weeks, in the next 60 weeks, we're going to read text in the scriptures and they're going to cut across the grain of our own sensibilities. And our job is to read those things, open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and say, God, tell me, where am I resistant here? Where do I buck this? Where do I bristle at this? Where do I kick against the goads? Because we are all in the same bucket when it comes to that reality. And I don't mean simply regarding our text today. I mean everything the Bible teaches is true. And that means everything that the Bible teaches is beautiful and everything that the Bible teaches is good for us, is good for us by necessity. We need to be honest about our tendencies as Christians. We want the Bible to feel good to us instead of changing what we think is good and trusting what the Bible calls good. We want the Bible to feel good and feel beautiful instead of changing our minds about what our vision is for what's truly good and beautiful. We're tempted to make ourselves something when the Bible shows us that it's our job to decrease so that Christ may increase. We're tempted to be the Lord of our own families or our own marriages or our own lives when the Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives and, when, and Christ alone has claimed that seat in every single relational dynamic you experience. You're Sarah's children if you do good and you don't fear anything that's frightening. Our text today says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ gi- giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord's. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So I'm going to close, I'm going to close in prayer. And before I do, I want to offer one kind of last pastoral exhortation this text in the next three weeks, at least, um, has household dynamics and the, the family relational dynamics, um, at dead center for us. This text aims at the heart of our homes. Okay. The heart of our home life, the life, the life, excuse me, the life of the Christian family. And the Christian family is the fabric of the church because the church is a family of families, right? So if we want this to be a rich and joyful, God-honoring church, then we need rich and joy-filled and God-honoring families. That means I'm deeply burdened that we take these three weeks to heart as we move toward finishing the book of the Colossians and that we invite God the Holy Spirit to give us and renew in us a vision for a family where these verses are being lived out, where obedience to these verses is being cultivated in our homes, cultivated for our joy, and cultivated for God's glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Only your word will last. Only your word will last. But it will last. It won't be stopped. And it won't be pushed away. It won't be brushed aside. Would you bring your word to this church exactly how we need it? whether it's a hammer on a hard heart or if it is comfort to a despairing weary heart would you bring your word to us would you increase our confidence in your power in your strength in your goodness in your loving care and your design would you increase the embodied humility in this place? Would you increase the embodied affection that we have for one another? Would you increase those things we can't measure, like how cohesive and how knit together we are in love? Would you intensify that in this church? Fill us all with the courage that it takes to love one another well. In humility, respect, kindness, patience, compassionate hearts. Would you do this today through the power of the Holy Spirit, working deep in our hearts and souls, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.